morning and welcome to the Dean's class. We continue with our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And that's on page 976 uh, in uh, the leather-bound Advent Bible uh, that you may have in your hand right now. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, as we look back uh, over our shoulder as to where we were before our eyes were opened to your grace and your mercy and what it cost you uh, to purchase us. And Lord, uh, even now, uh, as, as it is how we came to faith in you, uh, we pray that you would continue to open the eyes of our hearts, that these truths would take deep root, and that we might know what it means to be in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in the prayer, Paul is, again, looking back in the rearview mirror uh, at how it is that we come to faith in Jesus Christ. He even goes back to the foundations of the world in Ephesians chapter 1 when he talks about God's electing work. And he breaks it down in a Trinitarian formula of the Father's electing work, of Jesus' redeeming work by the shedding of His blood, and the Spirit's work by making us alive in Jesus Christ and coming and dwelling within us. And then Paul picks up with chapter 2 of what our life was like apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and what anybody's life is, apart, is like apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And in one word, it means dead completely dead spiritually, to reality, especially the things of God. It's not only that you don't have an interest in the things of God, but that you're actively working to suppress them. And that may seem like overstatement, but for those of us who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we look back on our lives, we see just how true that was. And this morning we come to a passage which may be one of the most famous in the entirety of the Bible, a passage uh, which declares the doctrine of justification by faith, which Martin Luther said uh, the whole church hinges upon this one great doctrine, that if we disagree over this issue, uh, then we can't walk together. Now, of course, there are other doctrines uh, in which uh, we uh, disagree about and cause us to not be able to walk together. But this, at its heart, is the crux of Christianity. How are we justified? How are we made righteous? How are we able to enter into a relationship with God? And Paul tells us here, in, uh, in both a negative as well as a positive fashion, that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of of God. Uh, heaven's not for good people. And that stands in the face of what so many of us have been brought up to believe. Uh, many of our Christianity has been molded by the culture. And you see that because when surveys come out about Americans and their religious beliefs, an overwhelming number of them believe in heaven. 
An overwhelming number of them believe in hell. Biblical doctrines, uh, biblical places, uh, certainly as real, uh, as real as you and I are living in this world right now. But when you begin to dig beneath the surface and start asking questions like, who gets into heaven and who gets into hell, the answer is almost always people that are good go to heaven and people that are bad go to hell. Or maybe people who try their best and do the best with what they have go to heaven, and those people who are really bad are the ones that go to hell. In a word, God grades on the curve. And the world, by and large, thinks that everyone deserves to go to heaven. But the Bible actually teaches the opposite, that no one deserves to go to heaven. This is why he speaks of grace and faith as a gift and not of your own doing. There's nothing that you can do to get into heaven. In fact, everything that you've done has merited hell. Of course, nobody really likes to talk about hell, and no one even wants to define hell. But in a word, uh, hell is reserved for the self-righteous, and heaven is reserved for sinners who through repentance and grace and faith come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's people in heaven who know their sin all too well and people in hell who are liable to complain and in some great degree would rather be in hell than to be in heaven. C.S. Lewis says this Uh, much better than I ever could in his great book, The Great Divorce. And in it, he talks about a bus that is traveling from hell to heaven, and uh, those on the bus that are coming from hell are ghost-like. They don't have a real physical presence. Uh, They are not even able to touch the ground. Uh, But those that they meet in heaven have substance to them. Uh, They're very real. Uh, They're not as Uh, ethereal as those who come from hell. And as the bus arrives at the gates of heaven, those in heaven try to convince those from hell to stay in heaven. Don't leave. Come in. Stay here. But in every case, those who come from hell would rather go back to where they came from than to go into heaven. And Lewis captures way back in the day when he wrote this around the mid-20th century uh, what most people believe uh, today. Uh, You can call this person every man, your average person on the street, and most especially someone who lives in the southern part of the United States. And so there's a story of a man from hell, the ghost, who meets a friend in heaven who is a redeemed murderer. On earth he was a murderer, but he came to faith in Christ, and so now he enjoys heaven. And the ghost runs into him and has this conversation. Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping his chest, but the slap made no noise. I gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I'd done my best all my life, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. 
but I've got to have my rights, same as you, see? And the one in heaven responds, oh no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better, never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best, and I never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do at once. Ask for bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. Well, of course, the man who wanted what was coming to him got exactly what was coming to him. And I wonder if you know this sort of person, the one who says, I only want what's fair. I've tried to live my best life, and that ought to be enough. I have nothing really to be forgiven for. I've not done anything wrong. In fact, I came from a hard-knock life, and now I've made something of myself, and that means something. You may know somebody of this sort, and you may, in fact, be that sort. Are you a Christian because you go to church, or are you going to church because you're a Christian? When I ask, what makes you a Christian? Do you say things like, well, I just try to live by the Ten Commandments. I try to be the best person I can be. Of course, we should all try to be the best person that we can be. But if you think that that establishes a relationship with God, Paul would say you're wrong. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And how difficult it is for some of us to receive a gift, any gift, much less the gift of eternal life from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I think that this is probably the greatest difficulty to ministering in the southern United States, is running into people who know just enough about the Bible to get themselves in trouble, and who still think that they have some sort of role to play in their salvation that somehow they've earned the right to be called a child of God, that they don't have anything that really needs any significant forgiving for. Yes, I'm very glad that Jesus died, but there are people who need Him a whole lot more than, than I need Him. I just sort of do the best I can, and Jesus picks up where I leave off. But you remember earlier on, Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're all dead, in our sins and in our trespasses. There's not any one of us that's more dead than the other. In fact, the most dangerous place may be the person who is not far from the kingdom of God, and yet to just barely miss it is more tragic than the person who misses it by a mile. It's not our works that get us into heaven. It's not our works that establish us in a relationship with God. 
Here's how the article of, articles of religion talk about this, and um, uh, it's old language, but it's true language, and says it much better than I ever could. This is Article 11 on the justifica- of the justification of man. We are counted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith, and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine, and very full of comfort, as more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. You can go look that up online and find the homily of justification. Or hear the next article of good works, albeit that good works which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment. Did you hear that? Even our works after justification. And so even the greatest of all the saints of God who get to heaven, even if they were to lay their deeds before God, they would not be able to endure the severity of God's judgment. Even the best that we have to offer falls under condemnation. That's strong language, but it's only echoing what St. Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, it's very important that we understand what grace and faith mean, because often we are operating under uh, a misunderstanding as to what those things are. And even we want to be sure that we understand that even when we say that we're justified by faith, what we're really saying is that we're justified by grace through faith, and that it's a gift of God. It's not of our own doing, not a result of our works so that no one may boast. That when we look back, we see that it was entirely God. Only by the merits of Jesus Christ, as the articles tell us, are we reconciled to God. As Paul would later on say in Philippians chapter 3, Uh, Just as I was mentioning that great saint who would stand before God, understanding that their works are not enough to ingratiate them to God, but even uh, could not withstand the severity of his punishment. In Philippians chapter 3, I just want to go back and say this, that Paul himself understands the nature of grace. He understands the gift of faith. Because it's his own, his own story. Remember, Paul's life was he was on his way to Damascus to do what? To kidnap Christians and bring them back for an extrajudicial killing. As we saw in the life of Stephen when he was stoned, there was Saul holding the coats. And it was then that God intervened in his life and opened his eyes by making him blind. The scales fell off. But Paul gives a bit of his testimony uh, in Philippians chapter 3. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, looking at the life of Paul helps us understand what grace and faith mean. Grace is often uh, defined as God's unmerited or undeserved favor. Paul speaks of it here in Ephesians chapter 2 as a gift. And that is what, what God shows us. And so God in His grace gives us faith, which means that God's grace has to break through in our lives before faith, before we can have faith in Him. And what we find is that not only is grace a gift from God, but faith is a gift as well. That it's something given to us. Again, hearkening back to the earlier part of chapter 2, when he talks about us being dead in our sins and trespasses, Lazarus is not in the tomb in John's gospel, sort of saying, I think I might like to get up and walk out. I'm going to will myself out of this tomb. But no, it's not until God's creative word speaks that Lazarus comes alive. I mean, do you see the two great powers at work in Ephesians chapter 2? In the first sense, that which brings us to life in Jesus Christ, which raises us from the dead, is the spirit of the resurrection. The very same spirit that raises Jesus from the dead is what brings us from death to life, spiritually speaking. And then that which gives us new life is God's creative word. In the beginning... God spoke. He said, let there be light. And then there was light. And just as he says, Lazarus, come out, he speaks a creative word to us, which we actually see in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so do you see that in grace... It's that working of the Spirit to make us alive in the Lord Jesus Christ where our eyes are opened, where we're only then able to respond to Him in faith. But it's not enough, it's not an issue to say, as most people do, well, you don't have this because you're not able to conjure up enough faith. If you're having a problem with faith, it may actually be that you have a problem with grace that you don't quite understand that it's the Spirit working within you that instills faith in you. Because too many people still think that faith is some kind of work. And in some sense, I understand why you think that it is. Because if you want to translate faith into modern language, you could use words like trust, rely, depend upon. But you're never going to come to faith without that initial work in your life that it turns out that regeneration precedes our salvation. 
And if you have a hard time understanding that, go back to Ephesians 1 and read about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit in our salvation. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this. The the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their heart. The grace of faith, what an interesting way of putting it, that it turns out that faith and grace are inseparable. You can't have faith without grace. You can't understand faith apart from grace, that faith is actually a work of grace that comes as a work of God. And it is only that grace of faith whereby we're enabled to believe to the saving of our souls. It is the work of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. Now, at this point, some of you may be saying, Andrew, this is what Paul says. Uh, This is a very sort of narrow view of how we come to faith because I think that human being human beings are endowed with free will and that we simply have the the ability to make these decisions uh, for ourselves. Well, I would respond, does that mean that that you're a Christian because um, you're better than your neighbor? You're smarter than your neighbor? Well, no. You're a Christian because God has chosen you. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. Now, as I've said in earlier classes, this ought not to cause us to settle into a fatalism, and I would point you back uh, to those classes in Ephesians chapter 1 where I talk about the the doctrine of election. Uh, But suffice it to say that, that actually this ought to drive us more to evangelize our neighbors, But this is not just some narrow understanding of the work of God that is restricted to Paul. After all, turn to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Acts 13, 48. And this is, of course, Luke writing uh, about uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 13, I'm only saying this for my own sake, Acts 13, 48. This idea of we come to Christ because He's already converted us. We come to faith because of the grace that He's already poured into our hearts by the Spirit. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. You see, God had been working in their hearts, had broken over their hearts, opened their hearts, and at that moment, like Paul on the road to Damascus, his eyes were opened. And so those Gentile eyes were opened as well. So that's the testimony of Luke, of God's saving work in the life of the Gentiles there in Antioch. But what about 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3? Now, this is Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Did you get that? According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He caused it. He worked it in our own hearts. Because what we find as the author of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. He is the one speaking. That's why there's a common narrative uh, throughout the Bible. And even in the Old Testament, we could go back and talk about the story of Jacob and Esau or God's choosing of the people of Israel. But once again, go back to my class from Ephesians chapter 1. But it's this preciousness that God gives us what we don't deserve and rescuing, rescuing us from sin and death and hell and giving us fellowship with Him so that we might enjoy Him forever. But in verse 10, we see that we're saved for a purpose, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why has God saved us? For good works, works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a purpose for your life, full stop. He wants to use you, and He will use you. This is why we pray in one of our post-communion prayers that we might walk in the ways uh, that, how does it go now? That we might do those things which Thou hast prepared for us to walk in. These things are not things that merit God's favor, uh, but in fact, as we're leaving the communion table, that we are being sent out to do the work that God has given us to do. Uh, I like what I saw once in a Roman Catholic church. Uh, as you walked out, there was a sign, uh, some words painted over the doorway that said, you are now entering the mission field. God, you have saved him for himself, but also that he might use you as the means by which other people might know, come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. And you have been created for good works in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not your own doing. Uh, it is the very gift of God. So I wonder... Uh, how you grapple with that. Uh, this passage in just three verses uh, lays out salvation in Jesus Christ, but also the purpose for your life. It, it's pretty comprehensive in these wonderful verses. Uh, but where does that leave you? The question is often asked, as you stand before the throne of judgment and you're asked why you should be allowed to enter into heaven, into the very presence of God, what would you say? If your answer is, because I've tried really hard, or I've done my best to live the life uh, that I've been given, or I've done really good things, I've done better things than bad things, friend, it's not enough, and you'll find yourself on the outs. The only thing that unlocks the gate of heaven is by our putting our trust and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, coming into relationship with Him by the power of the Spirit. 
And so even now, you have the opportunity to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that's what I want. I want to know you. I want my life to be in you. I want to have fellowship with the living God, and I want my life to have purpose even now. I want to be able to receive this gift of eternal life that is not mine. And when I speak of it, I'm incapable of boasting because I have absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, I worked against it. I argued against it. I tried to thwart it. I tried to undermine it. But I've come to realize, as we sang this morning, though my sins were many, His mercy is more. Do you realize that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's nothing that you can do to lose God's love for you. Because if his salvation is not merited, if there's nothing that you can do to earn it, there's nothing that you can do to unearn it. But rather than driving us away from the Lord Jesus Christ and thinking, well, then that means I have nothing to do because clearly Jesus says that you have been created for a purpose. And when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we do see our lives change. We do see the fruit of the Spirit working out of our lives. And more often than that, we, 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 more often than not, we see that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And it has to be God working in and through our lives. But when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, our life is changed and we realize that we're all beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. And it transforms our lives in such a way that we interact differently with other people. And it becomes very difficult to take for granted God's grace. A story of a guy that I worked with, uh, another clergyman, who came into the office one day and relayed to me that his wife and his five children, whom she was all homeschooling them all at the time. Uh, he'd left the house this morning after causing just about every single child to cry. He had kicked the dog. He made his wife angry, and he was really anxious about going home. He knew he was in the wrong. He knew he had done bad, and he knew that he needed to face the music. Uh, but that evening, as 5.30 rolled around and 5.30 turned to 6, and I was working a little bit later, I saw that he was still in his study but not doing anything. And I told him, friend, uh, you've got to go home at, at some point. And so he mustered up all the courage he had, got in his car, got home. He told me later on that he prayed in the driveway, and he went in to receive his just punishment. And when he walked in, there he was met by the wife he had made angry, by the children he had made cry, and even the dog he had kicked earlier in the day. And they took him by the hand, and they led him into the living room sat him down on the couch, removed his shoes and socks, and one by one, they began to wash his feet. My friend was completely overwhelmed by the grace and mercy shown to him by his family. They had every right to cast him out, put him on the couch, put him in the doghouse to say, I don't want to have anything to do with you for the next couple days at the least but instead they gave him that 
which he didn't deserve, and humiliated themselves in order to show their great love for him. And that's just a glimpse, a shadow of the grace and mercy that God shows us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after that event, my friend didn't come to me and say, you know what, as they were washing my feet, I thought, I got away with it. But it made them understand the depths of the love that his family had for him and how much more he wanted to love, love them, how he wanted to see that love grow, how he wanted to see that service grow, how he wanted to live a life that honored them and showed his devotion for them. And again, that's but a shadow of that which the Lord Jesus Christ has done for him, done for us, and how we ought to live our lives for him. The key to all of that is to understand grace and faith. Grace, God's unmerited and undeserved favor, And this faith, the trusting, relying, and depending upon, is actually the grace of faith, a gift that God gives us, whereby the elect are unable to believe to the saving of their souls. If you want to see your faith increased, pray to God, God, open the eyes of my heart that I might see the true riches of your grace and mercy, which you lavished upon me so generously in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for the faith that you show us in Jesus. Lord, we pray uh, that you would increase our faith by helping us to understand what it really means uh, that you have ransomed us from death and given us life by the shedding of your blood. And so, Lord, speak to us even now uh, that we might know uh, what it means to be created, uh, to be your workmanship, and to live in this world walking in light of that grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.